Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought off the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, thank you very much indeed for reading. Uh, my very warm welcome to you. If you spent last night on a bus coming back from uh, the Alps, then please ask your neighbor to find a sharp pin to help you through this evening. On the 19th of May 2018, a crowd of over 100,000 gathered in Windsor in order to witness the great event. 600 guests were already gathered and seated in St. George's Chapel, and an esti estimated 1.9 billion of us were watching across the world as Harry and Meghan sealed the knot. William was the best man, and Kate marshaled Prince George and the other page boys. On the 7th of March, 2021, as Harry and Meghan sat alongside each other in the now infamous garden in Santa Barbara County, an estimated 19 million tuned in as allegations around race, mental health, familial breakdown, and discrimination were made. So in a sense, the subject we're dealing with today could not be more familiar, whether it's WAG Wars, Colleen and Rebecca, or broken music partnerships, Pink Floyd and Simon and Garfunkel, whether it's Sir Clive Woodward sniping at Eddie Jones, or broken business partnerships all around us here in the city with litigation to follow, 
or bust-ups and punch-ups in pubs, buses, on football fields, or whether it's Vladimir and Volodymyr. What we're dealing with today is life outside the garden. In short, unhappy families. And what goes on between Cain and Abel is the most normal thing in the world. I guess every single one of us in this room, without a great deal of thought, will be able to conjure up sad and painful memories and thoughts of such matters. In another sense, what we're dealing with today is an utter tragedy. Adam and Eve have a baby. There's great joy. I have produced, says Eve. Adam and Eve have another child. The project is on track. They are to fill the earth and subdue it. The task has begun. Cain, the agriculturist, produces grain. Abel is into animal husbandry, sheep and goats. Cain brings his offering to the Lord. Abel his. One is accepted. The other isn't. Jealousy, bitterness, envy, rage, anger. Cain fails to deal with his growing indignation. The wound festers. Resentment grows. Verse 8. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. To the rebellion of chapter 3, verse 6, she took of the fruit and ate. To the shame of chapter 3, verse 7, they sewed together fig leaves. To the cover-up of chapter 3, verse 7, they hid themselves. To the blame of chapter 3, verse 12, the woman you gave me. To the futility of chapter 3, verse 19, dust you are unto dust you shall return. To the exclusion and isolation of chapter 3, verse 24, he drove out the man and placed a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we have conflict and anger, disagreement and rage, resentment and murder, unhappy families. It all began so well. Chapter 2 presents us with the perfect garden, the ideal home. Chapter 2 introduces us to the perfect relationship, man and his maker. Chapter 2 paraded before us the beautiful couple, Adam and Eve. And now Eve has begotten a man, and just so soon as Adam and Eve give birth to two more humans, the violence begins. And the sullen, stark, harsh, uncaring, blunt, brusque statement of verse 9 could not be more bleak. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What did his eyes look like as he said it? Hard, cold, heartless, dead, shifty? Where was he looking when he said it? Straight at the Lord, bare-faced lie, I'll brazen it out, down at the ground, ashamed denial, with a shrug of the shoulders. Who cares? And as sure as God promised, judgment follows. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so to envy and rage and murder, denial and guilt, accountability, discovery, judgment, punishment. And by the close of chapter four, Cain's am I my brother's keeper has turned into Cain's grandsons. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then mine will be 77-fold. Unhappy families, exponential violence. And you may say, well, this is so depressingly familiar. This could be yesterday's newspaper. This is utterly contemporary. This could be today's news feed. Gang murders in El Salvador. The mother of two stabbed in Bethnal Green. A teenage stabbing in Chadwell. Separation, divorce, litigation. And if you say, well, this is so depressingly familiar, I would say, well, precisely, that is exactly the point. You may remember two weeks ago that Tim pointed out that the book of Genesis is very tightly structured, assembled together at the hands of an inspired literary craftsman. The chapter numbers that we have in our text weren't there in the original. The way authors divided up their material were with very clear markers. The marker is there in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of. The marker is there in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of. It's again in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of. 10, 11. These are the generations of. 11, 27. These are the generations of. Every time the author begins a new section with a new subject matter, new material, these are the generations. These are the, these are the, it's their way of telling us new episode. This makes chapter four of Genesis an essential part of episode one. From the beginning of chapter two, to the end of chapter four. And if you like, the title page of episode one is there in chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, this is key stage one. This is primary school. Oh, here's your name tag, Johnny, and this is where you hang your coat. This is kind of the next step on from playing in the sand pit. If you don't understand this, you're going to be clueless in life. You'll never make sense of the world. You haven't graduated from primary school if you don't understand the message of Genesis 4. But you may remember that uh, when Tim was talking on this a couple of weekends ago, you may not, but you may do, hopefully you do, uh, he showed us how the author has, if you like, mirrored the material of chapter two in chapter three, and it all hinges like a, a this is a folded piece of paper, if you can't quite see it from the back row, it's my illustration. It mirrors like a folded piece of paper, 
Chapter two, ideal home. The end of chapter three, ruined home. Next in chapter two, perfect relationship. Towards the end of chapter three, ruined relationship. Ideal couple, broken couple. And right at the center, rebellion. The rebellion of Adam and Eve. So chapter four, oh, it's inside episode one, but it's outside the mirrored material. It's almost as if the author is saying, oh, if you want to understand life on planet Earth, following the rebellion and the judgment of God, this is what it's like. Fail to understand this and you haven't graduated from your primary school. You'll always be an infant in the world. I grew up with a generation just ahead of me, as one does, all of whom had been raised in the 1960s and the 1970s. That era, those people, I think some people call them baby boomers, I like to consider myself just slightly out of that group. But that era, they were kind of nurtured on the theology of John Lennon. Imagine all the people living life as one. It could be argued that this view of our world has governed foreign policy and global planning for the last 20 years. Blair and Clinton, Schroeder, Global Village, living life as one. Genesis 4 says, if that's really what you think the world is like, you need to go back to primary school. I was spent some time with my predecessor here, who was the rector of St. Helens before me, on Friday afternoon. It's always a great joy to go and visit Dick Lucas, and I pop in once every couple of weeks nowadays. And I put to him that the generation above me kind of conducted their foreign policy and business around the world as if we were living in a global village and it was all going to end up happily ever after, and they'd been conducting global policy kind of along the lines of John Lennon's Imagine. He said this, it was exactly the same in the 1930s. They had no theology. Isn't that striking? In other words, if you want to know what life is going to be like on planet Earth, oh yes, unhappy families. If you want to know what life is going to be like on planet Earth, oh yes, envy and revenge, greed, and battle. Uh, oh, oh, if, you want to know what, if you want to understand this world, oh, you're really surprised at Ukraine being invaded by Russia? Well, have you not been to primary school? But there's more to this key chapter than that. You will have noticed so far that I have left out of our study one key aspect. And you're probably saying to yourself, oh, the preacher is cheating. Well, he has been so far. What of verse 4, 5, and 6? In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? 
if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Why is it that Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's is not? At first glance, it would appear that there is no explanation. Abel's offering is a lamb. Cain's offering is grain of the field. Why was one accepted? Why was the other not? Has God got something against vegetarians? Verse 3 is an offering of the fruit of the ground, and verse 4 is the firstborn of the flock. Was Abel's offering somehow more impressive? Verse 7, if you do well, was it that Cain's offering was made from a heart that was impure? Well, one of the things to do in the Old Testament when faced with a conundrum of this sort is to look in the rest of the Bible and see what it has to say. In fact, that is one of the things to do whatever, whatever the case is. Always the Bible authors will understand the Bible rather better than you or me. They are, after all, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. There are at least six references to Abel in the New Testament. Repeatedly, Abel is described as righteous, the blood of righteous Abel. But on what basis is Abel described as righteous? I wonder if you would turn to page 1211. Keep a, a paw on page four or wherever, wherever you are in Genesis and then turn to page 1211. And you should find yourself in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse four is a whole chapter on being accepted by God on the basis of faith. And among the first examples of those accepted by God on the basis of faith is guess who? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It seems then that Abel is described as righteous on the basis that he approached God by faith. That is, he did not approach God on the basis of what he had done or who he was or the works that he had accomplished or with any degree of entitlement. Oh, well, I'll keep God happy. He must accept me. I've done this. I've done that. Pat on the head, God. I'm okay. I've approached God on the basis of my achievement and what I do. It was simply on the basis of God's word and God's promise and God's willingness to accept Abel in spite of who he was. Ah, you say, you're reading an awful lot into this, William, from just one verse in Hebrews, and I can imagine you saying that. So let's get back to the text of Genesis 4. When I first came to study uh, Genesis 4 to preach here on a Sunday evening, it was a number of years ago now, and there happened to be on the staff at St. Helens at that time a Hebrew scholar, and I thought did what all wise rectors do when they're... Uh, preparing, I rang him for advice. I said to him, look, looking at Hebrews, uh, it seems to me that 
what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Abel was accepted because he approached God on the basis of faith rather than the basis of what he'd done. Do you think that makes sense of Genesis 4, which was uh, written and, in, and I didn't have Hebrew, and he did. He said this, oh yes, William, of course it does. Look at the names. Now at that point, I had a choice to make. Do I bluff or, or, or do I actually come clean? I mean, I could have bluffed. Oh yeah, of course it's doing with the names. Absolutely, very good, very good. But no, 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 I came clean. I said, Ben, uh, just, <clears throat> just tell me, tell me a bit more about those names, would you? <laughs> well, actually, there's a footnote. You should have a footnote down there in your text. What does Cain's name mean? Eve said, I have produced. Cain's name could be translated, I have achieved. I've produced. And those of you who've been skiing over the last few days in, uh, in, in, and also listening to Ecclesiastes taught will know what Abel's name means. Hebel. Vanity, vanity. Vapor. Worthless. Just a breath. So it seems to me that with the uh, rejection of chapter 3, they're now shut out from the garden, and Cain and Abel seeking to draw near to relationship with God, Cain seems to be doing it not on the basis of faith, but rather on the basis of achievement. I'm going to bring this sacrifice. This will earn me a place before God. I'm right with God. Abel is coming to God. Well, i am actually got nothing in my hand, nothing, nothing I can bring I'm just a vapor, and I can only do it if God has mercy on me. There's a famous hymn written by a bloke called Augustus Toplady, who I always thought was a woman because of his surname, but no, that's just his surname. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Yeah, of course it ties in with the names. You can imagine them at the breakfast table, can't you? Uh, pass the sugar, would you? Worthless? What are you going to get up to today? I have achieved. This then would explain the rage. If you approach God on the basis of your own works, why you end up thinking that God owes you something? If you think that God should accept you because you've done something to deserve it, so comes a sense of entitlement. And with that sense of, I've deserved something, so comes the disappointment, the sense that God has not delivered what I deserve. And approaching God on the basis of works is a hotbed of sullen, grudging, envy, anger, quiet, disappointment with, and rage against God. And if you think you can earn favor with God or gain access to God on the basis of your works, and there's somebody else who comes saying, well, there's nothing I can do to get right with God. It's entirely dependent on his mercy, and he accepts me simply on the basis that I trust him to have mercy on me by his grace, 
then that person is always going to be incredibly irritating to you because they do nothing and you do everything. And as you do everything, and then it appears that things don't necessarily go the way you want to, well, then you feel incredibly sullen and angry at God and angry at Cain. So Cain's murder of his brother Abel was the first religious violence in the history of humanity. And our author is saying, man-made, works-based religion will always produce religious violence. Do you need to go back to primary school to learn that? And with Cain seeking entry back into the garden on the basis of his effort, and Abel rejoicing in grace and grace alone, the fact that God will accept us freely and willingly on the basis of his mercy. Why, nothing is likely to cause resentment to foster more than that. And it's worth doing, if you have a moment to do this, you can track back through Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, the occasions where Abel is mentioned there. And of course, Jesus nails it perfectly. He speaks of righteous Abel in the context of the religious establishment, work-based religion, rejecting Jesus. So here are two men. They're aware that they're locked out of the garden paradise. They want to regain entry. How will they get back in? One, I have achieved. I'll try and do it through my own effort. I'll go on pilgrimage. I'll make gifts. I'll do penance. I'll go to mass. I will lead in this. I'll give up my time. I'll earn favor with God. And here is another. There's nothing I can bring. Just God's mercy. I will rejoice in the God who is gracious and kind and merciful and serve him from a heart of thanksgiving. Three lines of application. First, to the person looking into the Christian faith. You know, I really hope uh, there are people here who are looking into the Christian faith. It's a great place to do it here on a Sunday evening as we explore the Christian gospel. You're really welcome, either whether you're rusty on Christian things, or this is a first ever exploration. It's wonderful that you've come to be with us. I'm so glad you've joined us this evening. But you will not get into a relationship with God on the basis of what you do. It's one of the earliest lessons of the Bible. It's on the basis of what God has done. And in and through the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, he's done everything necessary. And if you come to him, as Augustus' top lady encourages us to do, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. He will accept you. The trouble is we find this so hard, don't we? Because we've been raised on the doctrine of works. 
from the very youngest age. Remember when you were a little one at school and they gave you those badges, you came home to mum, you had this wonderful badge on your thing, you know, the Good Behaviour Award or whatever it happened to be, they gave you at primary school a sticker. I mean, I saw various children with those and I thought it reflected very badly on their classmates if they got the Best Behaviour Award, but there we go, we'll put that to one side. The best one of those badges I ever saw was the Clean Plate Award. I mean, you're really scraping the barrel, aren't you? If you get the Clean Plate Award, it's like the, the most improved maths person. I mean, you know, you are absolutely shockingly bad at maths and you actually manage to add two and two together and make five, I mean, sorry, four for the first time. Okay, but... What is a city bonus other than the Good Behaviour Award? It's exactly the same thing for 50-year-olds. It's what's going on all around around us. It's how the world works. What is going on at Hollywood tonight other than I have achieved? And so we find it incredibly difficult, don't we? Particularly a group like this, where we've worked to get to the best school, to get to the best this, to get the other, to try and get the other. And it's all about, I have achieved. And we have to unlearn all of that when it comes to God, because my very best, best effort is shockingly unacceptable to God. The only way you can approach God is on the basis of trusting in his kindness in and through the work of the Lord Jesus. To the person looking, to the Christian person, you know, I think it's great we're looking at this at this stage of a year at St. Helens, because, you know, by the time you get to this stage of this term at St. Helens, a lot of people have been seeking to serve the Lord Jesus in all sorts of ways, and you look around, you're thinking, yeah, you're, you're looking pretty shot. I'm sorry if you think you're looking your best, but, you know, by this stage, we've been working hard, and, you know, you've been working away, and it's very easy to get the kind of Cain mentality if you think it's all about what I've done, I've done this, I signed up for the other, I went to this weekend, I did the other, and things haven't quite turned out. I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And actually things have turned out rather better for that person. And, and you get the resentment and that kind of horrible envy and, that, and, and slight disappointment with God that comes from works religion. And then the key life lesson. Life outside the garden, unhappy families, exponential violence. We'll have more of that next week. But really, if we haven't understood that, and we do our foreign policy or conduct our business as if we're living in a global village, you think, how naive are you? Baby boomers. No theology. Is there any hope? Well, I think there is, and it's there at the end of the chapter, but you'll have to come back next week for that. Let's pray together. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. 
it's the gift of God. We pray that you would write this key stage one lesson into our hearts very deeply, our Father in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.